Uh, But we're starting a new series, a four-part series, trying to do a sort of an overview of the entire Bible, biblical theology in four parts. And so the the four words that we're going to focus on are creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This isn't unique to us. Uh, This is a popular way of kind of breaking down the overview of the entire Bible. But today we're focusing on creation. Some of you might be able to finish the lines with me. There is uh, the, the most popular comedy in the day uh, has a 14-line song that summarizes the most popular version of an origin story uh, today. Our whole universe was in a hot, dense state when nearly 14 billion years ago, expansion started. Wait, the earth began to cool, the artichokes began to drool. Uh, Neanderthals developed tools, we built a wall, we built the pyramids, math, science, history, all unraveling the mysteries that started with a big bang. Steve said he would give me a hey at the end of that. So that's, it happens in the show. I can't tell you who sings the song. You can look that up later if you want, but I want to keep my job because I like it. And their name itself is not appropriate, but it is the most popular version of an origin story that we have in the world today. And it just so happened, uh, we didn't plan it this way, that we would speak on creation today, and then this week on Tuesday night, a creation debate would take place between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. I don't know how many of you tuned in on that. You could tune in live, watch it online at debatelive.org. You can actually still access it um, online for free. Um, somebody will try to sell it to you, but if, you can pay for it if you want, but you don't have to. Uh, it's still online for a couple of days in a, in a free medium. And I would just highly recommend, if you didn't watch it, um, especially compared to what there is to watch on TV, it's well worth your time. It's two and a half hours, uh, so it is a time commitment. uh, But like anything, it's always easy to hear someone else's opinion of something, but when we have the opportunity to hear directly from the source, that's always your better option, and you're adults, you can uh, come to your own conclusions about it. I'm going to give a little bit of commentary myself, but I don't even want my perspective on it to influence you too much. I would just encourage you to take the time to, to watch it um, and to, to learn all that you can from it on both sides. But the debate was, the, the question of the debate was, is belief in creation viable in the modern scientific era? Is believing in creation viable or reasonable in the modern scientific era. And, and they went at it, and they actually kind of throughout the debate changed the nature of the question, where in fact, I would say the scientist himself, Bill Nye, was willing to say that nothing he was presenting in his science would dismiss the possibility of God. He just had a hard time believing and accepting certain things that his debater, Ken Ham, believed. But he was willing to acknowledge that in everything that he was articulating about how old he thought the universe was, how old he thought the earth was, and human beings were, that everything he was presenting in and of itself was not necessarily opposed to belief in a God um, who could have been there at the beginning of it all. They were mainly arguing about just when the beginning of it all was and how long ago it was. So I encourage you, if you haven't, uh, to take the time to go ahead and watch that. But we're talking about creation, and so... We would answer the question here in the affirmative, is creation a viable model? In today's modern scientific era, we would say yes and amen, and we believe so, and we're going to go to Genesis 1 to look at why. So I invite you to open a Bible to Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to read the chapter... 
not quite in its entirety, but almost in its entirety. And it'll be hard for me not to reveal my opinion as I, as I make comments throughout of, of, of what I thought of the debate. But as it comes to Genesis 1 and 2, I submit to you that when, what we're about to read here in Genesis 1, first of all, this is written thousands and thousands of years ago. So as this was written and as this was heard, people weren't back then debating whether or not there was a Big Bang, whether or not uh, we had evolved from other species. That's a debate that's come about in the last couple hundred years. So whatever we think about that, when this was written a long, long time ago, that wasn't the debate that people were having. So what we want to do to understand any Bible passage well is, one, to try to understand what it's saying, but to try to understand what it's saying in what the first people who had heard it would have been thinking about. What was in their minds and what were the debates going on in their own day so that when they came to Genesis chapter 1 and they heard someone read it or recite it from memory, what would have stood out to them? That's not something we just do at Genesis 1. That's what we try to do with the whole Bible. We don't just read it and say, oh, this is what I think it means. We want as much as we can to try to understand what it would have meant in the original setting to the original audience of who would have heard it. And I would submit to you that Genesis 1, for people way back in the day, and if you want to sound educated, you can say ancient Near Eastern civilizations. If you just want to say Israel's neighbors, that's what it means. So back in the day, Israel's neighbors, they would have had some beliefs about creation and how the world came to be. So when this came about, this was a contrast to those other beliefs, what the Babylonians believed, what the Egyptians believed, or what the Assyrians believed. What was said here was in contrast to those different ideas. And I believe that what we have here primarily is a description of the who and the why of creation and not necessarily the how and the what. As an example, we have places not very far into the Pentateuch where we get a description of the how and the what and we see what kind of writing that's like. So that in the first five books of the Bible... There's a lot more chapters devoted to how the tabernacle should be built than how the whole universe was made. The further you get into the Pentateuch, we get a lot of descriptions. So do this, and this is how you do it, and this is the kind of material you want to use and do it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and this is who you want to have do it. We get descriptions of the, of the what and the how. And when we come and we realize we only get through one chapter and the whole universe has been in existence that we have to consider in saying, I think maybe something else is more primary, and that is, in fact, who is working and why did they make the world in the first place? So that's how I want us to read Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. 
And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit, bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants. Yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light over the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth because across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, which with which the waters swarm according to its kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created a male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And there we'll stop. Because we're going to go to Psalm 19, and then eventually to John chapter 1. But here, what we've read, what stands out to people in the day as this is being written to Israel's neighbors, is so many of them worshipped multiple gods. And they usually thought of those gods by something that they could see. And so some of them believed that the sun was a god, and some of them believed that the moon was a god, and some of them worshipped this type of animal, or some thought maybe some ruling thing in the sea. But usually their gods is all false gods end up becoming or some part or version of the creation that people began to bow down to, which the Bible calls idolatry. Whenever we worship something in creation rather than the creator itself, we're committing idolatry. So what would have stood out to them, which doesn't stand out to us because we've been so influenced by the Bible for such a long period of time, is actually the fourth word in our English translation of verse chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And somebody would have raised it and said, wait, wait, okay, but which God? No, 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 the only God. What do you mean the only God? There's only one God. There's not only one God. There's this God, there's that God. No, no, no. We believe that there is only one God. But what about this and what about this? What about this? Well, that one God is the one God who made everything else. Everything else you see that you honor that is bigger and stronger than you, whether it's the power of a storm, whether it's sea creatures that you don't quite understand, how do they live in the water, whether it's the, the, the way the sun and the stars move and create seasons, all of that, those aren't the result of different gods acting. There's only one God who's over all of that and who created all of that. The three major religions in the world today believe that there is only one God. But back in the day when this was written, that was the minority opinion. Very, very few people believed in only one God. We've been so influenced by it that that is one of the things that we just assume that makes sense that doesn't quite stand out to us and shock it like it did them. But when the people in Israel's day, their neighbors believed in these multiple gods, what they then often thought was these gods were fighting one another and they were in conflict with each other. So that one God created a whole bunch of people because he wanted to use them as servants to go and attack the other God. And so that other God created his own servants and creation was explained in some version of conflict that all of this came about because some people up there are all at war with one another. And when Genesis 1 opens and says, no, there's no conflict going on. There's only one God. He's not in conflict with anyone. He's the only being out there. And he made everything that is to be made. Then creation came about not as a result of anger or conflict, but God created the world out of the overflow of his love. This is what the main point I want us to take away from Genesis chapter 1, that God created the world in love and everything he made was good. God created the world in love and everything he made was good. Because if you're a person who thinks that there's all these different gods and you only worship this one, then anything that comes from this God is not a good thing. And so if you worship the moon God and not the sun God or you worship the sea God and not the land God, eventually you start to think of your thing is good and everything else is bad. But when you believe that there's only one God and he made everything, then you can believe that everything he made was good. And that's the refrain all throughout the chapter. He did this, he did that, he called it good. He did this, he did that, he called it good. He did this, he did that, he called it good. God created the world in love. He wasn't at war with anyone And he wasn't bored with anything. It was out of the overflow of his abilities, his power, his beauty, that he said, let there be light. Let there be plants. Let there be an ocean and let there be creatures in the ocean. That this is God creating freely and willingly so that everything that's here is here because he wanted it to be here. 
And that is something that we believe that stands in stark contrast to those who don't believe in God. When we look out at anything, we say it's here because someone wanted it to be here. We don't believe that it's random. We don't believe that it just happened, that it's an accident. We look not only at each other and say there's a purpose for why you're here and there's a purpose for why I'm here. We can stand outside and look at a tree and say, someone wanted this tree here. We can eat fruit and vegetables and say somebody wanted this to be here. They wanted the world to work like this. There's purpose in it. There's design. It's not meaningless. There is a reason why we're here. And it was quite fascinating in the debate. Bill Nye, the science guy, acknowledged that as human beings, we all have a desire to know why we're here and two, whether or not we're alone. For him, what that meant was, if one day we find out that 10 million years ago there was life on Mars, then we'll know we weren't alone. I don't know about you, but that doesn't do it for me. Oh, they became extinct too. We're not alone. We'll become extinct too someday. Isn't that encouraging? No. We do want to know whether or not we're alone, whether or not we matter. We ask questions about life, but there is a limit to what can actually provide that information to us. And so again, when the question came to him, so you say that 14 billion years ago there was a big bang and you have all these reasons why that's fine, but where did that come from? And he said, I don't know. That's a mystery. Okay. What if someone who was there told us about it? What if someone who has been there from the beginning could give us information about why the world is here and the purpose behind it? We can't discover it from our vantage point no matter how good our tools are. We can learn a lot, but there is a limit to the amount of knowledge we can acquire. And one of the basic convictions of the Christian faith whether you believe in a young earth or an old earth or wherever you fit on a spectrum of creation, is that God has spoken and the God who's been there from all time has revealed himself to us and we can know things, not because you or I are super smart, but whether you or I are willing to listen to him who's been there for all time. That we can have access to information that no microscope or telescope can ever give us. If we're in communication and in relationship with the God who is there. But that's the big point I submit to you of Genesis chapter 1. That there's a purpose to the world. And that that's still true. That you can look into a mirror and say, someone wanted me here. Even if when you look in the mirror, you know ten people in your life that don't really want you here. And they don't really like you. And you're not really getting along with them. If you take seriously what the Bible says, in spite of that, you can say, someone wanted me to be here. Someone created me in love and said when he created me, it's good. This is good. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't get his timing wrong. 
He wanted us to be here on purpose. And when he looks down on us, he calls us good. When we get down towards the end of the chapter, we realize that God invites us to love the world and enjoy him through every good thing. So he created the world in love. He called everything good. And then he made us in such a way that he invites us to love the world and to enjoy him and to experience him through everything that is good. So that when you get down to verse 26, uh, yes, verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He gave us a capacity that other parts of the creation do not have in giving us the ability to express and experience what love is. And then to say to us, here's the world I made. Love it. Care for it. Look after it. Look after every part of it. But I've given to humanity something that has not been given to other parts of creation in this capacity to know and to experience what love is. So he does that to invite us to love the world and to experience him through every good thing. So now I'll ask you to turn to Psalm 19 where we'll see this developed as well in Psalm 19. This is a biblical theology of creation. That God made it all, that everything he made was good, he made it in love, that he invites us to love the world and to enjoy him through it. This is Psalm 19 on page 456, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the earth, its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. And that's where we'll stop. What is the view of creation expressed here? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We can when we choose to love the world like God does, we can actually not just enjoy the world, we can enjoy him through the world. And that's actually how he's designed it to be. He has designed us with our five senses so that one of the main ways that we experience God is by experiencing him through his creation. And we discover things about how amazing he is by looking closely at the world, by studying the creation that he made. There's another thing that came out in the debate that both sides had a passionate plea to say, there's nothing in our faith that should prevent us from wanting to discover more and more about the world. If God is the one God who made it all, and he called it all good, 
then whether you want to pursue biology or chemistry or geology or astrology in studying creation, you don't have to go into those fields worried that somehow you're going to discover something that's going to challenge your understanding of God if you believe that it's God who made it all. And so what you're discovering in astrology and biology and geology and chemistry is the way in which God works and it all declares his glory. Now there might be some things that you learn that challenge your interpretation of certain Bible passages. That was something even Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis was willing to acknowledge. We believe the Bible is inerrant, that it has no errors, but we don't believe our interpretations hold that same weight. We're human beings. And we always have to be willing to test our interpretation of the Bible compared to the information that we have. Why? Because the Bible itself says that creation reveals God's handiwork. That we can know God and see his glory when we study creation. We can also do that when we study each other. So if you're like, I don't really care about rocks, whether they're in the ground or in the stars, people are much more fascinating to me. Well, it's the same thing, whether you want to study anthropology or sociology, counseling, be a humanities major. Again, you don't have to go into any of those areas of study and be worried and be on the defensive that somehow you're going to learn something that's going to challenge your belief in God. Why? Because God made all of us. And when we learn more about how the brain works, about how our bodies work, about how relationally we get along with one another, excuse me, the more and more we learn about that, we're discovering aspects of what God has created. And if our eyes are willing to see it, it will just lead us into more and more worship of who God is. So that the scientist who's credited with cracking the DNA code is a Christian. The pursuit of that discovery and that science that we now use came from someone who, he would tell you, the more and more he looked into it, he's discovering more and more. This isn't just random things that are happening. These aren't just accidents put together. This is wonderful. This is beautiful. This is amazing. It's, it's more complex than any of us thought, but in it we see the hand of God in each and every part of it so that we experience God through every good thing. Now, some of you should be sitting there and saying, well, wait a minute. When I read in the New Testament, it says that if you love the world, that's not a good thing. And that's true. And that's what we have to talk about next week in the fall about how every part of God's creation has been affected by this. But what we're trying to do is just lay the groundwork of what it means that God created the world. He created it in love. There's no other explanation for why he would have made it. And he invites us to love it as well. And when there is no sin involved, this is how we're designed. To experience him through the world. And to love it in the way that he loves it. Now the problem is, we love it in our own way, and we get off track more times than not. But at the most basic level, when we look around at people, at plants, and all the things that are out there in this world, if we believe that God created in love, we are called, in fact, to love it. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of this world. The Bible is always sin-condemning, but it's also life-affirming. 
It's sin condemning, but it's always life affirming. And you can, by having your favorite beverage and smelling it, be like, wow, this is amazing that there'd be a world like this where you can drink something like this that smells like this and tastes like this. And and you can look out as you tend your own garden in the spring and you see plants coming up. Be like, wow, it's so amazing that we live in a world like this. And you can get to know another person across the table at dinner time and just be amazed at how complex human beings are and how much work it is to communicate sometimes to another person. Through all of those things, it's not sinful or wrong to love them or to enjoy them. It's not sinful to love football. It's depressing if you live in Ohio, but it's not (laughs) sinful to love something in creation. Because it was God whose idea it was that there be a world and that there be rocks and trees, oceans and lakes and mountains and valleys. It was his idea and he wants us to love the world and to enjoy every good thing and enjoy him in it. Now we'll go to John chapter one. Because we're trying to do a biblical theology of creation, we have to go to every part of the Bible. Because we're human beings, we're limited in our capacity, so we have to pick and choose which ones we go to. But we're gonna go to John chapter one. And this is what we get about creation in the Gospel of John on page 886 about the world and why God made it. Verse one. In the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Go to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but Jesus has made him known. And that's where we'll stop. I submit to you that God's love for the world and the goodness of the world are seen most clearly in Jesus. So if you're tracking with us that he made it in love, called it all good, that we're supposed to love it and experience and enjoy him through it. We see all of this best, most clearly, when we look at Jesus himself. Because at the very heart of the Christian story is that the God who made it all said it was good enough for him to become one of us. He's got to stop and think about that. That the God who made it all said it was good enough that he was willing to become one of us. There's so many stories and so many personalities throughout human history where people get an inflated ego and they start to think that maybe they're a God and they have more power than they really do. 
it's quite a unique thing to say to the world, the God who made you, the God who made this, said it it was good enough that he was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to experience what that's like. And that he could experience it and it would in no way compromise or challenge who he was. To be an infant, to be a toddler, to be a kid learning in school, to be an apprentice to his father in a carpentry shop. All of those experiences that he was willing to go through and all along, none of them compromising who he was or the purity and the holiness that is, we understand God. That when he looked down, it was good enough that he was able to experience it. He wanted to, again, because if we say, well, why did he come? Again, he wasn't in conflict with someone and he wasn't bored. He must have come because he wanted to come. And what we learn eventually is he didn't just come because he wanted to see what coffee tasted like on our end and just experience the world, but he came to redeem the world. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice so that you and me in the world could be saved. But here's the thing. He wouldn't have done that if he didn't already love us, right? Isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would perish, that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So that he had to love us before he came into the world to save us. Because if he didn't love us, then he wouldn't have come into the world to save us. So from his mind, What he made was so good that when he looks at you and me and he looks at all the struggles that we might face and all the sin that we might commit, he says, I made you and I love you so much, I'm willing to save you. I mean, you and I, we have all kinds of things in our house and our cars that we look at and you know what, when that thing breaks down, I'll just get another one. If that doesn't go this way, I'll just throw it away and I'll buy something else. And you and I have to stop and think when we ask the question, where do we come from and are we alone? That when we look at all the brokenness that we experience and all the sin that we struggle with, is there someone out there who loves me enough that he wouldn't just say, you know what, I'll just make another one? Or does he love us enough that he would say, I'll do what needs to be done so that you not someone else, so that you could be saved, so that you could be cleansed, so that you could be forgiven. Well, he would only do that if he loved us. He'd only do that if he loved us. And so we see God's love for the world and the goodness of creation most clearly when we look at Jesus because he was willing to become a human being. And he was willing to offer himself as a sacrifice so that human beings, and then the promise, which is where we'll get to in three weeks of restored creation, so that everything can be made new and can be restored. And this gets back to the quote, if you have a handout that's there, from A.W. Tozer that says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us.
Here's the application. When you think about the world and you ask yourself, why am I here? Where did I come from? And does anyone love me? How you answer those questions is the most important thing about you. It affects how you live in this world. If you think it's all an accident and you think it's all random, then this world is a short little time for you just to do whatever you want and to experience whatever you can experience. Because that's it. Once you're gone, you're gone. So only what you experience here and now is what you experience. That was one of, for me, the most powerful points in the debate. The science guy says, we all have the desire to know why we're here. And the rhetorical from Ken Ham was, but why? If a hundred years from now, no one will ever know we were here, and no one will be here, and we won't know anything anymore. And he couldn't answer the question. Why do we crave knowledge? Why do we crave discovery? Why do we want explanations about the origins of where we're from? If this is all there is. But if you believe this isn't all there is, that there was someone who made it and that there was someone who made you. That doesn't cut you off from discovery. Go discover the world. Go learn. Go be open to your interpretations of certain passages all along the way. But you go forward in the knowledge that someone loves you and someone wanted you to be here. If you think about it in conclusion, in the story of the prodigal son, the conviction that the son had to come to before he would come home was that he had to remember that there was a father, there was a home, and that father loved me. If he didn't believe that, he never would have come home. For you and I to be open to God's working in our lives, for salvation to take place in us, we have to believe There's a God we can go to. We have to believe that there's a home we can return to. And we have to believe that in that home is a place of unconditional love. And that's what we believe, and that's why it matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you as the maker of heaven and earth, the God of all wonders, who is so filled with goodness and love that you created everything around us with purpose and meaning so that we could know you and enjoy you. And we pray that you would help us to view ourselves in the way that you view us. That for anyone here who's wondering if there really is a God out there, if there really is a home that they can return to, that through your spirit, you would speak to their heart in ways that are mysterious to all of us, that you would assure them of who you are, of your purpose and your intentions for each and every one of us. We confess that we so many times don't realize how amazing and wonderful life is. And we walk past and drive past things that should cause us to worship, but they don't. We just ignore them. And we pray that you would help us in looking at your word, that we would have eyes that are willing to see and that give you all the glory and the praise that's due your name for what you've made.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.